0: so Much for downloading this episode of Bees Pod. Even by Barnet's standard, the last few weeks have been a roller coaster ride from the highs of victory against Yeovil Town, the lows of defeat by Notts County on Saturday, and now the incredible uncertainty facing everyone at the club and in non league football over the weeks and months ahead. On tonight's wide-ranging show, we discuss matters on the pitch, players that we'd like to keep, disappointments in players we've lost, will Darren Curry stay or go, what happens to the players in lockdown, and ultimately, are we heading in the right direction or not? It's a really interesting show. We'd love to hear your thoughts together. Let us know what you think on Twitter, and most importantly, enjoy the show. <music> Hello and welcome to a special edition of Bees Pod. This is the second podcast that we've had to record in the last few days. We record an episode a couple of nights ago, uh, but since then, as usual at Barnet, everything has changed in the space of 48 hours. Uh, and here's discussed with me what has been a momentous week for the club on and off the pitch. Uh, it's Mem. Mem, just give me a, a one-sentence summary of how you are feeling having been a Barnet supporter for the last 48 hours. Can I just check Twitter, before we start anything, can I just check Twitter,
1: just to make sure that nothing massive is happening as we're recording this,
0: because, so we don't have to re-record this again tomorrow morning. I mean, it's been one of those, it's been one of those crazy times which, um, all of us who have supported Barnet know the feeling where it's just constant change. We used to be a club that prided ourselves on stability. Uh, and I remember we had a, a good record of managerial appointments in terms of sackings and continuity up until around uh, just after Paul Fairclough left. But since then, it has been an absolute whirlwind. And once again, we find ourselves in the middle um, of a storm, um, a very uncertain time for the club, I think, on and off the pitch. Um, But we're going to kind of spend this evening and this podcast going through a couple of things. We're going to look at, first of all, the the disappointment of losing out in the playoffs against Notts County uh, over the weekend. We're going to look at what's happened uh, to the club since then. Uh, in terms of information around funding, academy, um, players, contracts, etc. We're going to have a little think about what's going to happen to the club going forwards um, in terms of the squad, uh, whether we'll remain uh, fully paying members of the 5 side Enfield League. Uh, and then we're going to have a discussion about really uh, what we always end up talking about, which is uh, the sort of existential future of the club. So it should be a good one. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting into it. But I guess, men this all starts with... Uh, three o'clock on Saturday, um, last Saturday, and and a performance and a result against Knotts County that I think it's safe to say left a few of us quite disappointed. Yes, I yeah, it was a, a huge
1: disappointment. I just want to add, nothing has changed since we started this podcast. We'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, I'm keeping an eye on it just in case. Otherwise, we're going to have to start again. Um, so yeah, I think the, the weekend was was really really. A real disappointment. And for me, I don't think Notts County posed as much of a hassle as Yeovil did. I just don't think we performed very well on the day. Um, And I think what happened was that... And funny enough, I tweeted this and then Darren Curry said something very similar in his interview. But against Yeovil, we were poor in the centre of the park... Um, but we were very effective in both boxes. Against Knox County, we were average in the middle of the park and we did move the ball okay, better than against Yeovil, but we were really poor in both boxes and delivery quality in the final third was really lacking, um, which is very different to the Yeovil game where we punished Yeovil with individual bits of quality so it was just frustrating watching players not struggling to struggling to cross a ball or struggling to show any quality that we knew that they possessed so yeah I just and I just feel that that Notts County kind of were there for the taking but they just ground us down and ground us down and their two best players were the two guys in centre midfield which is where we were the poorest I thought
0: yeah, I, I agree. I think it's interesting just comparing it back to previous playoff games. And I think the sense of frustration is correct. And you go back to the Shrewsbury game back in 2004 where we, we lost on penalties. I think there was a sense of just real disappointment at the penalty shootout. Um, and it was a very even game between two teams over those two legs. And we maybe lost out to a side who were just marginally more clinical on the day, but it was... You know, real pride and in, in, in what we've achieved. And then you go back to, so obviously, you know, the piece of the playoffs where we were we were taken apart by Dave Farrell that night. Um, and you just you just have to hold your hands up and say we were beaten by a, a phenomenal side, well, a phenomenal player on his day. You had the best game of his life. And then the the Colchester game where it was a real sense of frustration and anger at the way that we'd lost out over those two legs. And, um, you know, I think this one was slightly different. It was a real sense of frustration that we just were sort of a six out of 10 across the park. And we never really got going in a way like we did against Yeovil at points, uh, albeit that we did ride our luck in that first game. I think one thing that people picked up, men, was the quality on set pieces and the quality of delivery into the box on Saturday. And it seemed that we didn't, you know, first of all, the quality of execution was, was fairly poor, but also the quality of thinking in terms of our set-piece delivery didn't seem quite as sharp as it had been in previous games. Was that something that you noticed as well, or was it just a sort of a same standard as, as most of our pauses across the park?
1: Yeah, I th- yeah it's, it's difficult to say with, with uh, set-piece deliveries because sometimes you can't tell whether or not it's the movement that's been poor... Or the execution of the plan is poor or whether or not it's just the fact that it can't work because the delivery is poor and when we had so many corners you have to make the assumption it was the delivery that was poor because it was time after time that um that we you know we failed to hit any barnet player or put the ball in with any meaningful intent on it um i mean to give example is that yeovil um against yeovil when we played against yeovil the guy who was putting in their corners and free kicks was whipping it with such intent that it was causing all sorts of panic. Whereas our crosses in contrast and our sorry, free kicks and corners were very floaty and always gives a defender a chance to, you know, to get a good sight of the ball and get the head on it. And whereas if you put the ball in with a bit of pace and a bit of whip, it's, it, you know, player times their, their header or their or their Clearance, and it can be in their own goal. And I just thought we never put them under any pressure. And I think, see, my theory on, and sometimes in football, is that is that if you put if you increase the pressure on a team and you make them feel that they become less and less brave to uh, you know to push forward and less and less um, you know you want you want to put you want to put a team out of their comfort zone and you want them to put them on edge and a way to do that in a lot of games sometimes is to put them under so much pressure in their own box that it affects the rest of their game and the problem we had was, was because we were so poor in in the final third the NOS County players just almost got strength from that and it was almost like okay look you know you're not going to hurt us so we can, we can play our game and it, we caused them no we caused them no headaches and, and no sort of um, panic at all so they just played their game and they just played out their game in a calm and measured way and I just felt I just felt that you know we could have created that that panic and that chaos factor and there was no with McCallum up front there was no chaos factor because of the ball just was not fed to him correctly
0: yeah I think it's as you said it's it's one of those games where it's a kind of classic Barnet game we've seen those away games quite a lot where we we just were there but we're not quite quite good enough in certain areas to justify getting a result Um, and it it obviously was a really sad way to to end a season that's been a very strange one even by Barnet standards I mean, a lot of people said before the playoffs, particularly fans of other clubs, <coughs> Stockport, uh, that we were very lucky to get into the playoffs um, based on PPG, uh, perhaps not quite understanding how how maths works. But the thing the point <laughs> is that we we ended up we ended up in the playoffs through PPG and actually came into the playoffs, you know, after a three-month hiatus, having been on a fantastic run of form. And while some people may say we were very fortunate to make it into the playoffs would it have perhaps been a different story would we perhaps have been in a better position do you think men, had the season finished and do you think we would have maybe carried some of that momentum into what was looking like a side who were making the playoffs do you think that actually in some ways playing the season out to its conclusion would have benefited us um, and actually the current situation was really we were the ones who sort of lost out in a weird way no, Covid, in my, opinion, in my opinion,
1: and I've got, there's no doubt in my mind that Covid killed us because from the point that we, uh, I think it was we beat Ebb's at our home, um, and on that run, the amount of points that we were we were, put, we were piling on, and the and the number of goals. Now that's another thing as well. We were starting to really rattle the goals in, and the goal, the goals per game was starting to it was going to go up to the point where we had a plus ten goal difference. I believe that we would have probably finished in a higher position um, in the league, which would have meant that actually we wouldn't have had to play that additional game against Yeovil. So it, we could have been in a situation where instead of having to play three cup finals, we, we would have had two cup finals. I know small. I know it's only one less game, but psychologically, you know, it's only two games uh, to play, or it's one game to get to Wembley. But also that momentum, that rhythm that those players won. They were used to each other. They were they were knowing where each other was going to be. And the fact of the matter is, is that we had Callum Reynolds, Dan Sweeney, Shay Alexander, and Dan Sparks available. Um, and don't get me wrong, people who listen to this show knows that I, I feel that Dan Sparks is a bit of a one trick pony. But, but in my eyes, that game against Notts County, he probably could have made a difference from his delivery from set pieces. So having not having him in the squad was was a, as, a, as an option was a, was a, was hard. And also by the fact that we didn't have either Callum Reynolds or Dan Sweeney, meant that it weakened our midfield because we had to bring Harry Taylor back into midfield and we played Charlie Adams. And this is not making a scapegoat of him, but he. He's, he's hardly played all season because he's not at the level of Harry Taylor. So we found ourselves having to try and find solutions because we lost players, you know, because of the COVID situation. So, yeah, so... Really, in my mind, that the COVID really did kill us.
0: Yeah, I think I think it, you know every club has to react to situations in front of you. In, in football, it's difficult to control a lot of variables. But you're right; like losing a significant a number of our back four, um, losing the momentum we were on, was a real difficult thing to overcome, and, and it, it was a real shame. And I think for some people, we kind of football coming back, we were excited. We were we were like, oh, it was fantastic. We get to see our club play in the playoffs, and it was brilliant to watch it. But I think for people. You're looking at Darren Curry's interview at the end, the emotion there for him, in particular, is someone who's done so much work with the side, I think you know people look at managers as being overseers and about recruitment and retention, etc. But he really did develop that squad, and people forget that you know you're talking about players like Sparks there and Charlie Adam even, who you know last season, you know or prior to Curry coming in, were really not seen as as, as good players, and actually under Darren's work have, have come on leaps and bounds. Um, so I think it's it's one of those, you know, his interview, I think, really brought home just how much work had gone into this season and just how disappointing it was uh, for it to sort of end the way it did, both in terms of the result against Notts County, but also in terms of losing that momentum and that chance to really make something special. I think moving away from on-pitch matters, and we sort of touched upon it there with with the player situation, I mean... Since the since the start of, of lockdown or since the start of coronavirus really affecting football, Barnet have been um, somewhat unique in some ways and, and less unique in others in terms of how they dealt with it. I mean, the first thing we read was we were the first, I think, uh, professional football club in England to go about um, looking to make significant changes to people's employment status through furlough, etc. The moment after lockdown was announced, even before furloughing became a policy supported by the government... I mean, obviously it's a very difficult situation, but we've gone from a position where we've had a squad which was on the verge of the playoffs and on the verge of making a great run to having a really fed fed squad. And I guess before we get into analysing it, I mean, just just talk us through, Mem, the last few days, sort of, and and even before that with the four players that left. What what happened in your opinion, and, and why do you think we find ourselves in a position of having gone from a playoff pushing side to a side that is, you know, can barely get out a full 11?
1: So, so this is an, int- this is interesting, cause, um, so this evening, <sighs> Um, I've spent a bit of time speaking to various uh, people uh, trying to fact check some of the stuff that we've been hearing rumours wise Uh, so quite early in the the lockdown things started to sneak out of the club and I was started to catch wind of it and I think we discussed a few bits and pieces Uh, and as time went on more and more things started to escape from the club so my understanding and I believe this is factually true um, because I've had it Confirmed to me tonight was that the players were were furloughed, and when it came to the point where the players, it was announced the playoffs, and we had to start making making arrangements. The players were invited um, to come back into the club and and start training. Now, what happened was is that all the players. Now, this is this is actually something that's changed because. Initially, I was told that the players were offered quite poor terms to return. Now, this has actually turned out to be incorrect. So, the players were offered the same terms as which they were on already. But the difference was was there was there was a, a disagreement between the players and the club as to when the furlough should finish. And obviously some of the players were, were obviously the players were getting either eighty percent or was it two and a half thousand pounds as the limit wasn't it so for some players that was a pay rise and obviously with mortgages to pay kids to fee you know kids at home and stuff um, they needed to come out of furlough as soon as possible and they had a contract they had to sign as well for the extension so there was a bit of uh, an impasse between the club and the players uh, from what I understand before they'd start training so as part of that process, um, two of the players had already... Um, now, prior to that, sorry, I, I missed a, a, a section, which was quite important. So in January, the whole squad apparently was sit, sat down and they were told up front... Uh, because I think by this point, I think the club had decided that we had no chance of going up because they didn't foresee that we were going to go on this big unbeaten run or this big sort of, uh, I think we got beaten once, but didn't, but this long run of good form. So the club had assumed that we were never going to go up. So in January, players were told, your contract, um, you, 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 your contracts will not be... Um, uh, extended, um, and you're free to leave. You know the club at the end of your contract. Um, and some players were told your contract will be extended, or your contract is going to be your option will be taken up. So they were told in January. So the whole squad knew that where they stood. So which makes it almost even more amazing that the players actually went on that massive run with some a lot of that team knowing that they weren't going to be here next uh, in next season. So. That was in the background, that came back. Now, what happened was, is a couple of players found themselves new clubs in the meantime, um, on which we've seen, since found out that Shay Alexander and Dan Sweeney, uh, one's gone to Wimbledon, and Dan Sweeney has gone to Forest Green. Two more players, Reynolds and Sparks, decided that either, for whatever reason, I've heard various different stories, either got clubs lined up, or basically just... <laughs> Didn't want to get, risk themselves getting injured. Decided that they they were going to step away, and some of the players were forced to resign extensions because they got they got
0: kids to feed and mortgages to pay. Just so, just to jump in, just to be really clear on yeah. that point, just for the sake of clarity. When we're saying when you're saying that they were forced to sign it, that that was a decision that they they made, but they just felt the circumstances meant that they needed to make that decision. Cool. Yes, of course. Yeah, by by forces in their own personal circumstance meant that they couldn't go
1: that salary. So they, they continued, yeah, the club that didn't force them to do anything. Um, and <laughs> I just got a laugh at it, it uh, was good. And uh, anyway, so, so we had the situation, so we had, we had this reduced squad f- for the playoffs. Um, And then obviously once the players had fulfilled all their obligations, obviously uh, players started to, as we saw, started to say their goodbyes and announcing their goodbyes. And then I think the club was forced into making a statement because some of the players, I don't know if they jumped the gun, but the players started over, was it a couple of days, they started sort of saying their goodbyes and that we're leaving and, um, and then we got a clearer picture of what
0: was left. So I think nine players now. I mean, I think a couple of things. There's obviously been some a lot of frustration, and disappointment about what's happened to the club in terms of the, everyone wants us to go up, etc. And I think there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in it. And as ever, when things don't quite go right at the club, it kind of all, all the skeletons are dragged out of the closet, and, and the bitterness towards various people at the club, etc. Is, is you know comes out. You know, oh, it's always you know TK's cases TK's that, and I think. Um, you know I, I do have a, a lot of respect for TK in the way he does certain things i think what i would say though and i think this is a sort of not to play devil's advocate but to really think about this is we are football is about to go through a crisis like the rest of the world in terms of economic crisis unlike anything we've seen for a long long time and actually it was interesting looking at other clubs you know in our league Steven H being a good example you know signing 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 players The reality is that clubs at our level require a certain level of income in order to pay their expenditure. That income is heavily determined by crowd receipts, and ultimately, if there's no viable way of ensuring that money coming into the club on a regular basis, the, the budget has to be adjusted to that. The second thing, which I think the club accurately mentioned in the statement, was the ending of parachute payments. And the reality is that the club are losing X amount of money and some of the players, and we know that they were on some of them were on good contracts, are being paid those contracts, then it does make sense to step back. So I think actually here it's not so much a sort of you know the players have all walked out because they hate the club, it's definitely not that at all, it's not the case that they've been balled and been given ridiculous contracts, it's a case that we have decided as a club and the players, some of the players have decided for themselves that at this stage for the club's financial future and for the playing future of the squad it's been decided that actually a parting of ways here is a good thing or, or, or the right decision, and I think there's a few points on this, I think firstly um, it, it, I think the people have been really shocked by the the drastic decrease in the size of the squad. And I think there are two points around this. I mean, the first thing is you've got to look really closely at the players you'd really want to keep and the players that you don't want to keep. And actually, we have kept, i probably say, if you someone said to me, what are your three, most, or, who are your three or four most play, important players to keep? I would say Scott Loach, I would say Harry Taylor, I would say Efron Mason-Clark, and I would say Josh Walker. And I think we have kept those four. We have kept some really good players at the club. And it's, so it's not the case that we are kind of like, you know, Notts County were in the summer or clubs of Bolton were at the start of this season that we're down to our bare bones with no players or even like we were when we went up into, into League One. That's not what's happened here. What's happened is that players that we think are good players, you know, Simeon or um, Mauro, Elliot, etc., have decided to part ways with the club. Now, so I think that's really important. It's it's not not like a fire sale. It's just like we have made a decision as a club to let those players go, or at least to, you know, whatever's happened there, they've left. I think a really important point, though, is that and I, I completely understand the financial pressures on the club. The parachute payments have gone. We need to renegotiate wages. What are those wages going to look like? What's the market going to look like in the next six months? It could well be that in six months' time, and we know that TK is nothing if not a really good businessman, six months' time, it could, it, we could be the ones laughing because Steven are ending up playing ridiculously over the, ridiculously inflated wages to players where the quality is not quite high. Because if you look, what's going to happen? Clubs will cut their budgets across the divisions. Those players will trickle down, and so the quality of the Conference football level could rise theoretically speaking and we could end up with our pick of players and a really strong hand in negotiations in terms of finances that put us in a great position so i definitely think it's far too early to judge this but what i would say is what worries me and what sometimes concerns me is a linear way of thinking about cost and expenditure and you made this point i think on social media or on the forum then which is that when you look at a cost it's not a fixed cost of wages player so you say right this player costs me x thousand pounds a year there are all sorts of hidden costs to bringing in new people into any organization in terms of you know getting them to bed in getting them to play in the right way, picking up results you know social benefits them sticking together as well and so when you're looking at the cost of a player contract someone who's been at the club for three or four years sure they might be commanding a wage of say £50,000 a year which is £10,000 more than someone who you might sign on a a different contract but the reality is that having that consistency of personnel is so important and actually if the players who are left at the club are thinking bloody hell what's going on we've lost all our mates we've lost all our best friends we've lost all the players that we love playing with and their performances differ as a result or they start calling around thinking about going then that's another intangible cost that you put in that you haven't factored into that £10,000 wage difference. So all I'm saying really in a very long-winded way is that it's a complex situation. I think it's probably too early to judge, but it does. there are some alarm bells ringing in one way, but in the other way, I can completely see TK's view in a long-term view, which is actually, we've lost our parachute payments, the landscape's going to change, the expenditure's going to shrink massively, and it's worthwhile waiting a couple of weeks to see what we can pick up later on.
1: So yeah, so, see where where my opinion on this slightly differs. Well, not differs, but see my opinion on this is um, is is that every club has its capacity as to which what it can pay as wages. So for instance, Notts COUNTY with their increased crowds could potentially pay a player two thousand pounds a week. Now, our limit on a player might be fifteen hundred, and I'm just making the, picking these figures out the sky just to make the point. If everything's if the whole market reduces by, I don't know, it contracts by twenty percent, twenty-five percent, then that still means that the the teams it'll be relative to the team's initial budget. Which means that still, despite the fact that it you know that that we are you know so maybe 1500 might become 1000 pound being our limit and notts county will go down to 1500 but that still means that they have that 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 financial advantage over us regardless of how many of the fact that the mark there'll be more players out there they can still go and pick up the better players because they've got that extra capacity. So what people need to understand is just because the the market is, yeah, there is going to be a lot of players coming to the market and yes, wages will probably come down. And I did actually speak as part of research for this tonight. I did actually speak to um, a football agent about what his opinions are on the, um, on the market. And he says, he says, it's hard to tell at the moment, but he says we do anticipate a drop. Uh, but he said that some of the better players will still be able to command a reasonable amount, a reasonable salary. So the key to it is, is the better players like always will always be, uh, will have decent salaries. And actually in part of the research as why well, I did speak to, um, uh, uh, I did speak to a player and he said to me that if a club really wants you, and there's two or three clubs in for you, you probably will find that you can either get this at you, you're probably finding at the moment that you get you can get the salary you were on already or maybe a little bit more, but it does depend on how many clubs are after you. Um, and by all accounts, there are players in the Barnet squad who have left um, who already have had interest and already had some people mute in sort of a sort of suggesting figures which were more or sort of similar to what they were earning at barnet so that's so it's it's going to be interesting but i don't i don't think it's going to be this fire sale and i don't think it's going to be this bargain hunt that everybody's thinking it's going to be
0: yeah i think two points on that mim i think i think i agree with you to an extent um actually i don't actually i i, I disagree with you actually. <laughs> I, I think i'd say two things i think first of all you know there is always going to be a comparative advantage right because you're right even if everyone's revenue shrinks by 50 percent the bigger clubs who can generate more revenue is still going to be slightly larger and we're very fortunate that we do have supplementary income streams that can support the football club i think some of those income streams are going to shrink right hospitality is is really limited at the moment and will be for the next year and a half so all the weddings that you know people always go on about the weddings and stuff like that are going to struggle but there will still be other pitch rentals etc that can make us money and that's a, a fantastic position to be in so the comparative advantage is there, but often in, in a market you have the first mover advantage, right? So, you know, in particularly in a transfer window, the clubs that get their business done early often benefit because they pick up the cream of the talent and often it is, it's not always a buyer's market. What I would say has happened, regardless of whether or not um, prices change, it, there is a benefit to being a last mover here or a later mover in the market. You look at Stevenage, for example, they've spent a lot of money and they've tied up a lot of their budget on quality that is at X level, that's inflexible quality. So they've signed these players and they go, right, these are the five players we want. But the point is that even if there are other players, you know, it, it only takes a slight adjustment for those players to look like quite bad value for money. And they've, they've tied down that money at the start of a market ahead of a bunch of uncertainty. Whereas actually, I think for us, it's not the end of the world. We can afford to wait a little bit and, and get a jump up in quality. What I would say though is that I don't think the jump up in quality will be so high at this stage to justify. The fact that we're going to lose things by breaking up a squad but at the same time I completely understand the financial situation of losing the parachute payments so I think there's kind of like a balance there to be had between the two of them. The second thing though I I do probably disagree with you and I think I don't think I can overstate how and it's an opinion but it's informed again by research that I did for tonight speaking to a few people about this in in the world of football economics and someone who works at a professional club in a sort of financial capacity who, who is of the belief that we are just grossly underestimating the impact of the coronavirus on the economy in general and that his belief is that we are on track for a general recession uh, or a depression that is worse than anything before uh, you know, anything really back until the 1920s in terms of the the impact on employment and all that sort of stuff and so when that kind of comes into play I just worry that we're perhaps being a little bit short termist in our thinking sometimes as, as supporters and saying right what's happened we've lost these players but the reality is that the whole nature of football at our level could change and it's is something we discussed briefly before men but you know football should adapt to, according to the times I mean you know looking at the skies of the squad looking at what's happened to the academy which has just been been sort of basically shut down or, or I should say rather the future is uncertain but it looks unlikely it's going to come back as per the Guardian article Um you know what, what What sort of things are now on the table that weren't perhaps before I mean is there a chance we could go part time is there a chance the league could be regionalised what sort of things do you think like sort of over the next 18 months might happen that substantially change the future of the club because I think we probably agree on a couple of things that, that might be a benefit to the club in general well I think if if I think clubs that clubs that can cope will
1: cope and they will stay full-time because ultimately there's always, if you look in the National League, the clubs that are full-time generally are near the top. And if our ultimate objective is to be in the league, then we need to be as competitive as possible, which means being full-time. But there will all be clubs that go part-time and there are always clubs that have a natural kind of ceiling Um And um, when we discussed this the other day, we were saying about certain clubs who've actually resigned from the league, from the National League and gone into a lower league because they just can't fund, they haven't got the infrastructure for it. Um... (coughs) So for me, the most obvious um, solution to... To these problems, one of the biggest one of the biggest expenditures for clubs is the travelling costs. Teams like teams, you know, teams that have to travel for up to Carlisle, who, who are down in, you know, down in, um, you know, down in Kent or in in Cornwall, you know, sorry, in Devon, having to go up to Carlisle and, you know, regular trips up to uh, Gateshead or you know places like that. That kind of thing. That kind of journey is a huge drain and. The gates are usually very poor, you know, very very low crowds, so it makes sense to me that we should Division Two and, and National League should be merged and made into a North and a, a North and a South Division Two. Um, and ultimately, and then that way, that way, and start the regionalisation um, at that point rather than starting the regionalisation at a conference, uh, conference north and south. And I think, for my, in my opinion, the, fir- the top ten in the in the conference could easily handle being in the league. Um, and because generally speaking, there's always that bottleneck in terms of reduction, in terms of relegation from the league. So there's always five or six teams of pretty rubbish at the bottom of the league. So. By regionalizing it, I think what you can do then is you can actually increase the level, increase the um, the competitiveness of um, of the two leagues by doing that, and also and then there'd be lots more derbies, lots more you know. Hopefully, the gates would go up because of the, the increase in derbies and 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 number of games that play people can go away for because they're close by. So I just think that, that's, that's a, that that to me is the most sensible solution to helping lower league clubs.
0: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm in full agreement with that. I think there's been some discussion. I think regionalisation makes absolute sense. I think there are, you know, and I have as many incredible away, memories of away games at, you know, Carlisle and Bradford and, you know, Morecambe and so on. But um, those are exceptions that prove the rule. And I think we have to cater football around you know, society and modern fans to an extent and and you know, if we want the club to grow and we want all clubs to grow and sustain themselves and be full time and, and be valuable members of the community, um I think there's a reason that, you know, we have, I don't know, a thousand fans at Stevenage and a hundred at Barrow and that's just because of distance and interest. And I think the more we can do to generate that the better. I think the final thing before we start looking at some really interesting questions that have come in is a subject that we've touched upon before, and I know we're not skating on thin ice here, but I think you know we should we should talk about these things in in a really mature way. Is obviously we have a financial problem facing the club, but you know and financial challenges facing the club that are that are really difficult for for the club to deal with, and I think I would certainly don't empathise. Sorry, I certainly don't. Um, you know, don't envy TK and and people at the club being in this position and making really difficult decisions, which I'm sure they do think a lot about. I just think the one thing that we often talk about is independent of of, of finances that often perhaps can hold the club back is always the relationship between the club and the fans, which I think we could all agree has been better at certain points than than it has been now and in the past few months. Um, And also perhaps the way in which um, the club's reputation with players and so on and so forth um, could be improved and that's not to say it's necessarily in the gutter um, but it's just about you know constantly looking at ways of improving this and it's been really interesting as well listening to some other brilliant barnet content that's come out in in lockdown you know particularly you know trevor Nell's stuff and downhill second part sorry downhill second half done some brilliant brilliant work and they love listening to those things um but you know some of those things that we discussed and, and got in a bit of hot water for a few you know a year or so ago talking about perhaps you know nutrition and and and, and sort of the way in which contracts were set up and on and so forth what what do you think the club could do or what do you think we could do perhaps men to um perhaps try and attract players to the club um that doesn't necessarily involve money do you think there's some some work that could be done there and again just for the sake of the record um you know this is you know we're we're not we're not saying that that things are currently done in a in a disastrous way at all we're just trying to find ways of improving it
1: i so the, the overwhelming the overwhelming feedback I've had over as long as I've so a lot of the stuff that we sort of fi- we've found out and things that we pick up a lot of the time comes from the fact that um, uh, from knowing coaches in in you know knowing coaches in the game so a lot of the stuff I've picked up is from from my time when I was coaching and people telling me about what the inner goings on at Barnet and everybody seems to have a story um, at whenever I bump into somebody who has got any connection with Barnet. And the main thing that always seems to come back is around the man management um, behind the scenes um, and the the way that, the way that players feel that they're being treated behind the scenes. Um, and the kind of things that have been sort of described to me is uh, they, don't feel, they don't feel very treated like adults, basically. And I think, and, and I think this comes. There's a whole sort of lots of different things that feed into this, but players. I think I, I want the players to come to Barnet and really love their experience at Barnet, and feel like it's a family club and feel wanted, and you know feel. And I want us to be in a position where players don't actually want to leave and we have to make that decision rather than players deciding that they have to get out as soon as they can and agent can you get me a club I need a club that kind of th- that kind of situation I'd rather it be the way that players like I want to play for this club because I love playing for this club and you're going to f- fight me to get you know to get me out of this club and and it's too many too many occasions players have, have been in the situation where they've said okay I've had my feel I need to get out of this club and a lot of that's down to management behind the scenes um, that is the area that I really would like to see I'd like to, people to come and have a really positive you know uh, experience of being a barnet um you know aside from you know the, what happens on the pitch but behind the scenes that they're, they're not always saying to me am not always saying to people i know yeah i could write a book about barnet that's the most common thing that's said to me i could
0: write a book yeah i think i mean i think it's it's pretty important to be aware of both sides of the story and i think you know um footballers well as anyone in any profession can sometimes be negative about about the place they work or and, and it 's really important I think Barnet have had and, and have in some places a really good reputation for doing some things really really well and I look at the work that was done by Barnet in the community for example that I think is a really some outstanding work going on there with, with the community the relationship with that Darren Curry has with the fans in particular is is fantastic and I think an absolute credit to it and I do think also the club are responsive in some ways to um, fans requests and I you know I don't I sometimes, you know, feel that the Q and As that, that TK ends up doing sometimes they're, they, they, something. Might, he might feel that he has, he kind of has to do them. It's, it's like an obligation because people are demanding it. Um, but actually, like it is good that there is a level of transparency there, and you do look around the, the, you know, the football league and you think, mm, actually, you know what all things being considered against the stand of people in football, we're really not in a bad boat. We've got a fantastic training facility. We've got a fantastic stadium. We've got long-term financial security. And we have got a level of transparency that is really positive. We also had a fantastic youth academy that was set up. And, and um, it's really sad to see that perhaps being threatened by, by funding losses. So I think it's important to sort of put everything in context and realise that the club is not run by a bunch of, of evil tyrants. It's run by by people who who I think clearly have the club's interest at heart but sometimes the decision making like in every walk of life is not quite optimal um, and I think you're right like we've talked previously about you know um, nutrition and, and injuries and so on and so forth but I think a potential review around that would be really good um, and looking at perhaps as you said like moving away from linear value i.e. a player is paid this much and they give me X in return and actually saying that you know if we if we increase quality of conditions and, and pay and so on and so forth, like you can create a really positive environment that reaps rewards in the long term. And I think at times like we we can get sucked into a short term way of thinking that actually in the long term sort of holds us back. And if you look at the squad in particular, and the playing staff, and all the things, where, where Barnet have done really well is when we've we've taken a slightly more long-term approach. We have built up a side over a couple of years. Both the promotion-winning sides basically took two years to build, um, and they were both you know in, from the conference or the, la- the last two promotion sides, 2004 to 2005. That side was built the back end of 0203, mostly in 2003-2004. Um, and then the fourteen fifteen side, again, the foundations were laid. The season before that, albeit in a disappointing end, uh, before before um, you know by not making the playoffs, and then were built on the season before. And I said, like a long term approach towards things around player care, around injuries, around nutrition, and basically around making the players feel really loved and welcome would be huge. And I think as fans, we have a role to play in that as well. You know, I know you mentioned the stuff there about people being able to write a book about Barnett. But also, like we know that the hive can't always be the most positive place to play, and you know we can get on players' backs far too quickly, and particularly in a smaller crowd, which ultimately it is. Like those individual comments can can really be heard, and you know I remember we've seen some young players come in and and really struggle to deal with that way of expectation. A good example, perhaps, being someone like Ryan Watson, who has gone on to be a really excellent midfielder at Northampton Town. They've won promotion to League One. He's been a key player there, and at Barnet, perhaps, and you know I include myself. In this, we're perhaps guilty to judge judge players too quickly there's a negative feeling around the club there's not quite the atmosphere there was at Underhill and all of a sudden you have this kind of negative spiral that that we're all part of right it's not just one person's fault it's it's something that we can all work on so I think I agree with you that there is there is some work to be done there um, but at this stage of the pod as we sort of head towards the the kind of not conclusion but the final section or so we've got a whole bunch of of, of questions and comments that have come in so what I'll do man, is I'll, I'll read a couple out to you and, and maybe if you give a comment and I give a sort of response as well Um that, w- that would be good I mean I guess the first question is around Darren Curry and whether or not we feel that Darren Curry will remain in charge of the club um, next season what are your thoughts on that
1: I feel that Darren Darren's interview against North County was quite telling obviously he clearly knew that which a lot of the players were going to be leaving Um like you said, we have retained some, you know, some positive players. But one thing I would say that, that strikes me has been it's going to be very difficult for any new manager is we don't have a back four anymore, or, or back five. All our defenders have actually now gone. So that is a huge task for Darren Curry. That's going to be a lot of manpower to try and get deals done, get them over the line. A lot of, you know, constantly shifting your budget. I'm, I wonder if Darren feels that that is a, a huge job that could potentially risk his, his you know, his growing reputation. Um, and, you know, let's be fair, managers at this level don't get a huge amount of opportunities early on. So you have to be very careful that, you, you know, if you're cultivating a reputation that you don't ruin, you know, that, uh, that promise really early on. So he has to be very careful. And this, apparently South End are strongly in for him. And I've heard that... This is, you know, there is a lot of this. There is some substance to it. Um, I'd love him to stay. I think I've enjoyed the way things have progressed, and I think he's done really well. As a manager, I think he's done really well to actually, as he's learning, and I, you can see the way he's adapted as he's learning. He started the season in one way, in one formation, gradually changed it, adapted it for the plays he had, and we were playing really good football, and we were scoring lots of goals, and we were really entertaining to watch. Um, so yeah,
0: so that's that. You know, what about you? What what are your thoughts about this? I, I would love Darren to stay. Um, I think he's been a fantastic manager. I think he's grown into the role. Um, he clearly cares deeply about the club, and I think he's. Excellent. And I would love him to stay. Really would. Um, I don't know if he will or he won't. I don't know how likely it is to be, him to be appointed at Southend. I know Craig Fagan's in for that role as well. But if he does, he leaves with our best wishes and I really wish he does very well. I would add two caveats to this, though. I think we're guilty sometimes of a club is not guilty. That's the wrong word. I think we sometimes fall into the trap of pinning our hopes on a messiah figure. Uh, like Curry or like um, Martin Allen who I've seen already several shouts for and I know they'll only grow uh, over the next few, few weeks and months and part of that is natural right like we are just a football club we're a small football club and we have these p- these figures that can take us through and, and lead to success but long term we've got to get a structure in place where we've got coherent succession planning and we've got a coherent strategy that works independent of the people in the role and obviously the people in the role can do a huge piece of work but if you look at you know, a club I was watching last night, Brentford. Brentford are an excellently run club. They've got a strong data analytics focus. But their work started seven or eight years ago to get them to where they are right now, right? And so what they've got there is they've got a head coach who's, who's excellent, Thomas Frank, who's doing a good job in there. But they've got a succession plan for if any of their players go and if any of their managers go and if any of the coaches go. And they've got a clear model. They've got a B-team model, which doesn't involve an academy. They've got a really clear setup up structure that will enable them to succeed, irrespective of who's in charge and so as much as I would love Darren Curry to stay and I really would love him to stay I'd love him to be these things are not mutually exclusive right? you can have Curry in charge and do these things we need to develop those systems in place if we want to be long-term successful in the league um, and I would include a couple of things in that some sort of discussion around a long-term strategy for the club that is actually a long-term strategy and isn't just Mark Robson for a few months Something around, um, you know, what's going to happen in place of the academy? Because I think again, there's an opportunity there for us to to do some great work. And I, the thing that's bizarre about the academy is that, you know, sure, it, it, I don't know the finances behind it, but we ended up selling players from that academy, and there are lots of players from that academy who have gone on and played brilliantly in the leagues. And there's an excellent article in the Guardian. I recommend checking out if you want to read more about that. And then also, we've also saved. you Sorry, I just cut you off there.
1: Not only have we've also made money out of the thing, we've also saved ourselves a lot of money because how many players have like we've had so many players progressing to the team that that's actually you know these players that could progress the team that aren't on big money when they come through the youth system and it saves us having to find the
0: player who's already, you know, from another club. Exactly. It goes back to what I was saying about the idea of non-linear costing, right? So the cost of the academy, it should not be seen as, and learning is as an expense, but it should be seen as an investment that breaches multiple things, right? You save money on scouting, you save money on on, on contracts, as you just said. Uh, you, You have so many benefits from it, but I completely understand the difficulty of financial pressures there. And the final thing we need is a sustainable strategy to grow the fan base and I think it is possible to do that so what I would say is yeah I want Darren Curry to stay who wouldn't want Darren Curry to stay but if he goes there's got to be a plan in place Um, and even if he stays there's got to be a plan in place and the reality is that football managers do come and go and players come and go and we've got to be able to deal with that and move forwards so I want him I love him he's my favourite player I cried when he left the football club Um, I will be very sad if he does go Um, but you know (laughs) we've got to get away from the short term thinking if we want to be long term successful Um, I guess following on from that, the next question, and we'll keep this nice and brief, sorry, so I'll stop waffling on the next Leeds manager should Darren Curry move on? Is it too early to say, or is anyone in mind? I spoke, yeah, so as part of, uh, yeah, I spoke to the agent
1: I spoke to, I said, is there any names that are sort of popping up? I've had a few typical sort of like, you know, your typical names, Hess and Tyler, um, Ian Hendon. These names, but the one that intrigues me actually, and at, the one, and at first when he said it to me, and I said, "No, nah, I don't think so," but then I thought about it. And I thought, with all the comings and goings at Watford, what about Graham Stack? Would he be attracted to to, to come back? As he's he's a UEFA A licensed coach, he's uh, he's been working at a Premiership club. Uh, he's he's had now he's had obviously a limited limited experience, but sort of running the team. But all this is valuable experience. Would he be attracted to come and and, and manage us? And also, he's a sort of character that would hold, stand his ground, and be a strong character that wouldn't allow himself to be pushed around. Um, and he holds respect to the supporters, holds respect to the players that the players that would be there in, in, in that change room. Uh, to me, he's a bit of a, he's. A, I, I quite, I'm liking the idea of Graham Stagg. I don't, know what, I don't know what he stands for. I don't know what he stands for as a football coach, but as a figurehead, I just, I, I think, you know,
0: that to me, that attracts me. Yeah, I think um, you, we've got to be really careful next season because as much as I've been not too pessimistic about the fact that players have left, there is, you know, big clubs have been relegated from this division, Stockport, Chester, sides with bigger, bigger fan bases than ours. And we've got to be really careful that if we, we don't do The Mark Robson mistake Which is you bring in A young Inexperienced manager You find yourself In a rut And all of a sudden You find yourself Scrapping down the bottom of that table And you you can be In real trouble Um, And I think We've got to be You know Not to be too pessimistic We've obviously had a side That were in the playoffs But we've got got to be Careful around that Um, I think I don't know Is the short answer Um, I really I really don't know I don't have the bandwidth To think of any names Um, But I would probably In the initial phase When it's a rebuilding year look to bring in someone who has a bit of experience. Similar to what nots did with Neil Lardley, bringing in someone with good experience who's still young enough and hungry enough uh, to make a difference um, would be, would be my, my preference. We'll keep cracking through the questions, uh, Mem. Um, next question, uh, kind of here, we've, we've looked at sort of people talking about, about different players, um, but a couple of questions have come in um, around this. It says firstly This is from John Lewis. He says every team's budget will be lower next season. Uh, will ours fall by more than our rivals? Question one, and then question two: um, What will the club's ambition be? Um, and then a second question, which we'll come on to in just a moment. So on that first one, there, Mem, we talked briefly about budget, but what do you think the club's ambition should be next season?
1: Well, club of Barnet size, always the ambition should be promotion. There shouldn't be any other. We've just finished in the playoffs. Promotion should be get out of this league. Um, we've just lost our funding. Being in this league is, you know, th- with this club, all tens of purposes in terms of the infrastructure is a league club is a league club. We need to have a league team. And Barnet Football Club has won this this league three times. The, never should there be a season where Barnet do not do do not uh, aim for anything less than promotion out of this league. That that's my that's my feeling on it.
0: Yeah, I think I mean I, I agree. I think stated ambitions have to be by definition ambitious. So um, I think you always have to say you're going for promotion. I think the reality is a rebuilding year will be necessary. So I would, you know, w- w- the ambition you say to the fans and to the players and to the club and everything is promotion. The sort of sackable, like bare minimum, would be um, a decent upper. I, I would say top, top table finish with a new squad would not be a bad shot. Um, a question from Dave. Uh, he says here, does TKC the football club as peripheral to the hive success rather than being complementary to it, and has he therefore given up on investing in the club? I think I think he's trying to. I think I think he's
1: trying to run parallel businesses. I don't think I don't think it's a case of it's on the periphery i think he he runs multiple businesses and we are just one of his businesses that he runs but barnet but barnet football club is essentially a customer of the hive because the internal from what i understand and i'm i've got i'm gonna have to pick more words just because i've got to rem remember exactly what i was told but basically the budgets internally um the, t- so the teams will pay the hive and the budgets are moved around from the hive so the hive will have a budget so the the teams will have a budget and then they they utilize the services of the hive that budget is moved around and i'm not sure whether or not that's just done for accounting or whether or not that is essentially the teams are are uh, an independent obviously a uh, company within the overall structure and they utilize the services of the hive that's how I, that's how
0: I understand it to be yeah I mean I, I think I'm, I don't think there's anything dodgy at all going on with the accountancy I think it, it, all football clubs try and find ways of maximising revenue and I think we're, we, we do a good job of that um, I think in terms of TK I think he cares deeply about the club um, I think he wants the club to do well and I would say that where we go wrong as a football club is not due to intention but due to a lack of clear strategy so I think the issues with the club are strategic rather than being a result of negligence or a lack of care I definitely don't think he's given up on investing in the club. I just think, as I was saying, I think the investment thinking has been too linear and I also think it's been too short term um, and I think that we, we've we got so much right but the fundamentals are still need a bit of work. So I, I would kind of disagree with the implication of that question. Um, we'll do we'll do three or four more. Um, a couple of questions here from Daniel. Daniel um how long we'll do, we'll do we'll do them one by one quick fire questions mem so you've got four here how long do you envisage being in the national league now realistically probably another three seasons yeah i would say the same as long as we don't go down uh question two um what do we do about the youth system that has done well over the last decade now it's gone
1: mem well there's nothing we can do if it's gone it's gone I think maybe we might move to the Brentford model and have a B team. So that might be, it, it means there's less, less people need to be employed. It means that we can still go and find youth, you know, good youth players and try and nurture them to bring them into the team. So we could, we could try the, we could try a similar model to Brentford.
0: Yeah. I would say, I think, again, the key important point would be with me some sort of director football or some sort of football strategy role, which would look at this. I think, you we should definitely have some sort of feeding into the squad but I think again there's a real opportunity to look at that in a sharp through a sharp lens and say you know is it worthwhile having an under nine under tens team the only thing I would say is long term again roots in the community I think it would be great to have those those football those younger football years coming through we've had some fantastic coaches go through that system as well we had a really successful youth team so there's something that could be done there I think the catchment area is also excellent for the club so I think there's a couple there's a real opportunity there if we get it right um, and so I, I you know, what should we do about the youth team system? I think we should look to replace it, again, by looking at it through an investment lens um, as, as quickly as possible with some sort of new system. Um, the idea of not having a youth team with the facilities we've got would be would be mad. I mean, imagine having all those facilities and then only having one team. Uh, it would be bizarre to me. Um, number three, why would Paul McCallum stay? And if you were him, would you? Ma'am?
1: Depends what's he, what he's been promised. I mean, if, if Cleanthus has said that we are... We're starting from scratch, but we're going to build this. And these are the players that we've got lined up. But there's also other sort of um, non-football reasons. I believe Paul McCallum is um, uh, from London, so he might want to be coming back to London. Uh, clearly, he's not wanted at Solihull, and and if he can earn a reasonable salary here now. One thing I would say is that Kylianthos, for strikers or players that, you know, players, you know, with strikers, he's always looked after. And the, some of the figures I heard about what he was paying to uh, John Akinde to keep him well, eye-watering. Um, so he is for a certain type of player he is prepared to push push out the boat and I wonder whether or not he's going to push out the boat for McCullum because I think he he genuinely is I've heard he's a big fan of McCullum.
0: yeah I think would McCollum why would Paul McCollum say it? I think it's difficult to make the case he should stay particularly if Curry goes it's a rebuilding job and I don't think he'll be in the league so if, you know for him if he says right I want I see Barn or I see my next club as being either a league club or a vehicle to being a league club I don't think we can offer that um, but you know financially we may be able to offer him a really good deal or oh, the sort of broader question should be Simon Cullen. I think it's very difficult. I'm conflicted. On the one hand, there is not a price you can put on a top quality goal scorer. And and both of our promotion winning seasons, we have primarily gone up because we've had a, goal, a striker who's got us 25 30 goals a season in Gratz and in Akinde. That being said, we do have two good, one maybe three excellent strikers in Mason Clark. Alfie Pavey, who I think there's a lot of potential there. And then also uh, Josh Walker. So from a sort of budget perspective, you kind of probably want to have, you know, split that budget well across midfield, across defence, across, you know, attacking positions. And I think actually of all the positions we, we need... Um, we don't have such a high demand for a striker so it's kind of like a conflicting answer um, and considering it's unlikely I feel that we're going to be really really pushing for the top position next year I think probably the money will be better off invested somewhere else um, and we can and develop Walker, Mason Clark and, um, and Pavey so I would actually not be distraught if he if he left even though I rate him highly um, Final few questions Um we recently lost um Raynell hercules to brentford because the academy has no longer sorry because the academy no longer has academy status does that mean we get no money for him and receive no money in the future uh, that's from jim it's quite a technical question that man
1: um my understanding is is that the point that this you know the fact that we've lost the academy funding that would expire at the end of this season so uh, he's at the end of his contract. He's come. He's he. I, I believe that we'd still be able to retain his registration because he's under the age of twenty four. So uh, Brentford would have had to pay us something towards him. I don't think he was a complete free transfer. There would have to be some sort of there'd have to be some sort of development fee because because he's under twenty four.
0: Yeah, I, that's my understanding. Is that, that it's based on registration rather than on like the status of the organisation that he was registered to? So I think you're right. I think we pay a development fee, but we will check that out, ma'am. Uh, sorry, uh, Jim, and get back to you. Um, a couple more questions from Jim. They're talking about the rest of the academy. Um, but here's a kind of a couple of good questions to finish on, um, Mem. Sorry, Jim mentioned I sort of mentioned that the expected reduced capacity for the hive will be just under a thousand people. I can see nobody being turned away because who else is going to want to turn up uh, and watch this side being managed by someone else? I think clearly upset there about the potential needs of Dan Curry. Um But just on the sort of crowd capacity side, Mem. What, what's your sort of expectations around what crowds will look like next year in the National League and, and whether you feel we'll be able to sort of get back and watch the Bees at some point soon?
1: Well, I think the fact that, the, the fact that we've got a ground that's too big for us at the moment helps us in terms of trying to get back after COVID um, because the, with a lot of seating in the ground, the club can actually... Um, it, it should be quite easy for the club to be able to you know maintain social distancing um, as long as they organize it correctly, so in that respect, I think the hive we're in a we 're in a good position with the hive being able to get football back on and get get back in front of go and watch football uh, in terms of moving forward, I, I actually genuinely think this is going to get worse it will get worse before it gets better because there was a wave of optimism progressing with a team. After, especially after Woking, the result of Woking we had this season. And I think that even if we'd marginally missed out on the playoffs this season, if we'd rolled over into the next season, you know, this is obviously in a, in a world that COVID didn't exist, I could have that the, the supporters would start to come back because it start, I remember it noticed it. I don't know if you noticed it at the time, but do you remember when we lost against uh, Shrewsbury in the playoffs? Um, after we... There was a kind of wave of optimism that kind of went into the next season, and it sort of started. And it, and it, although we lost 10 ten one against Arsenal, it definitely, f- it, it early on in the season there was like an optimism. And the crowd started to creep back up again after after the holiday period, and I just feel that that this was it was kind of had similar feel to that that period. Um, and now that everything's changed, it's it feels a bit more like when we had the mark robson you know the clear out before mark robson started um so that's i don't i don't see that being very attractive to supporters i think a lot of supporters will be we will just wait and see um
0: although i'll probably go to loads of games because i'm I'm desperate for a footy fix (laughs) aren't we all well I think it, we're As we come to the end Of this pod man I think it's been A really interesting End to the season um, And it's it's a shame That it's ended The way it has In many ways um, But I think What I would issue Is is a note Of opti- cautious Of just caution At this stage Neither cautious Pessimism Or cautious optimism I don't think This is the stage To be sort of Pulling our hair out And, and really worrying About um, the the team And the players And the squad For next season At the moment I think there's just So much uncertainty Um And I think, you know, ultimately we are a club with a limited income. We've got reasonably high overheads in some areas and this is the chance to really rebuild. And as ever, if the club have the right strategy and for the first time in 15 years, we can find a really coherent playing strategy to go forwards. I think there is always reason for optimism. And the one thing I would say is that we have got it right off the pitch more than any other club in the conference. I think every other club in the conference would give something in terms of, additional income sources, training facilities to have what we have right now. Um, The areas where we need to develop around the fans, around the team and other areas of the club we need to work on. But we're certainly not in a position to be fully depressed. And the final question we'll answer is there's a question that came in that says on a scale of one to 10, uh, one being, um, I guess, the worst and 10 being uh, over the moon, how are you feeling about tonight or how depressed are you feeling about tonight's news? So Mem, before we wrap up, our final question where are you at on that scale? Are you 1, which is super depressed, or 10, which is over the moon? I would say I'm, I'm, I'm a level
1: I'm a level 5. I'm, like, in the middle. So there are parts that I have my moments where I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be such tough. It's going to be so tough. But then there are parts of me that is uh, that's, that's a bit like you saying, let's see what happens. But I'm not optimistic at all at the moment. I'm just, like, in the middle just kind of going, okay... Show me some, show me why I need to be optimist, optimistic. That's, that's my feeling at the moment.
0: Well, I think I'm I'm on a five as well. For um, Once we agree on, on where we're at with numbers, uh, I'm still haven't forgiven you for calling seventh in the prediction pod. Um, but we'll we'll leave it there. What I would say to everyone is that um, you know thank you so much for listening. We'll we'll continue obviously our pods going forwards with a focus on the club as it is and and the ongoings on and off the pitch. Um, I would really recommend to everyone else to check out some of the brilliant content that's going out around Barnet. I've mentioned the second half podcast before. They're brilliant interviews with players that have brought back so many memories. So definitely check those out. Uh, Trevor Nell's done some great work as well uh, on a similar vein, both in sort of is his podcast and his writing. And there are also some other really cool things that are going on. Uh, Tom Bedell, his com- podcast conference call, is a really good look at. Uh, the conference and a slightly more holistic view of the league. And Charlie Casson, who's been a, show on, a guest on this show, has, has got an awesome podcast where he chats the various actors about uh, their experiences and roles within football. So there's plenty of, of stuff to keep yourself listening to and reading over the next few weeks and months. But we'll be back probably in a few weeks or so with another pod updating it, uh, as we are left with one player, uh, no ground, and uh, all sorts of craziness to come. I'm only joking, that's not what's going to happen. <laughs>
1: Closer on the outside. Footsteps tap through.